Hi, and welcome to the Work It's Personal podcast with me, Rowan Hammond. Today, I'm joined by Nick Deeks, who for the past 10 years has been the Australia and New Zealand Managing Director and Joint International Chairman of award-winning property and cost management consultancy, WT Partnership. Nick's story of growing up in the 1960s in the UK and then launching his career with 35 years experience across the globe in property and construction industries have led him to embark on a transformational change and adaptation journey six years ago leading WT Partnership through one of its most successful periods in their long 70-year history. Three years into that five-year strategic plan saw WT smash their financial people and wellbeing goals fundamentally changing the way they operate. But how did they do it? Nick's personal story is a fascinating one, but how it has shaped up the cornerstone of his leadership values today and the way in which he leads the companies to its goals is simply inspiring. I hope you think so too. And don't forget, if you like what you hear today, feel free to subscribe to our podcast where we'll be aiming to drop regular content for you from leaders in today's corporate world. Enjoy. Thanks for... Joining us today. That's right. Pleasure. Chat on work. It's personal. So, Nick, we're diving into to leadership and how it plays a part in, in workplace. But what I'd really like to do is kind of understand where it all started for you. What's your background? Where did you come from? Tell us kind of where right did, from the very Where did beginning. it all start? My God, I'm not sure where to, where to, what was the catalyst of everything. But so I grew up in London or just on the outskirts of London. One of four boys. Didn't really have very much. Dad worked hard and had tried to improve his lot in life and has moved us out to this place called Woodford Green. But yeah, we didn't, we had everything. I had a, we had a home, we had loving parents, but we didn't really have much. Like we shared clothes, we had hand-me-down clothes from the kids up the road and I hadn't even been on an airplane until I was 17. So um, our holidays consisted of just driving up to Scotland or driving down to Cornwall, nothing, nothing fancy and nothing flash. And I've done a bit of work with a coach, with my coach on, on stuff in childhood right and a lot of things that happen in your childhood have an influence on you mm. later on in your life you may not realize it at the time mm. it's not until you start digging around Most and definitely. going back and it probably yep. does but what we did have my parents were very principled so we were principles were very high on the agenda and, and and drilled into us and that has kind of stayed with me all the way through and mm. even subconsciously i just think about things where I'm very principled mm. and things mm. are right and things are wrong. Mm. And, and even from a young age, so before um, five sort of thing. Oh, yeah, probably. Probably mm. was about four. I think influences mm. happen about four years old. Mm. Pre-four, probably not. Mm. And, you know, after that, it, it isn't. But I think a lot of the studies say that things happen to you around four years old do have a bearing influence on your life later on. So that was kind of the bedrock of who I am today, I suppose, because of the way my mum and dad were at that point in time. Dad was was very hard working. He always wanted to try and improve his life. He'd come from, you know, he was born during the war and he, he wasn't evacuated, lived in the east end of London and just, you know, grew up in the mud pits, it was called. Bombs are going off and it was all, you know, wow. pretty weird kind of time. Mm. Used to swim in the River Thames and that was like filthy. They'd go across the other side and be caked in mud and to see white teeth. <laughs> but, you know, they were just like, if you see a film of, of kids in the late 40s, early 50s, that was him. You know, mm. long grey shorts, grey socks running around in mud kicking, yep. A, yep. kicking a rock. And Fantastic. You know, <laughs> Sounds pretty good. Probably... Probably enjoyed his life. So I always had a thing about working hard and trying to improve what I had. Right? I was very... It's only now looking back, we had an okay life, right? We had a home, we had loving parents, and it was all stable. But I never thought I had anything. We always saw everybody else had more than what we had. Mm. 
Dad was a really hard marker. He just drummed into us that we were never going to make a success of anything. So he wasn't, mm. it wasn't like encouraging. That's it was unlike more, the English psyche, isn't well, it? Well, it was very, <laughs> it's like hot, tough love, you know. <laughs> the way to get better is to tell you you're never going to succeed in anything. So, and actually, I think that, you know, was very influential in, in who I am mm. because I was very driven to try and improve what I had and mm. improve and be better and prove him wrong. Mm. So... Mm. You couldn't do that now. I think if you started telling your kids that they were useless and never going to make anything of themselves, that wouldn't inspire them to be good. You'd probably be hauled up in front of social services. I think they're very influencing factors. I, I wasn't very academic at school. I didn't mm. work hard at school. I left at 16. First opportunity I could get out of school, I did. Mm-hmm. I left with next to nothing. And you go and do an apprenticeship? I did an apprenticeship as a mechanical engineer for a company called Drake & Skull in London, who would be similar to... Who would have over here? Probably Freedon, mm-hmm. Heyday. Yep. Except I was on the in the design side, so I wasn't out on the tools. But we did have to go out on site and you know experience work life on the on the site. So I think Dad was a big influence in in many respects there. And then another influence, in fact, of when I was at work, which at the time was horrendous, like it, it scarred me for life. It was a project manager on one of the building sites I worked on his name was Paul Marks and he absolutely hated me and he made my life hell Mm. like seriously hell you know I'm just a kid earning like 40 quid a week and I used to cycle to cycle to work all over London because I couldn't afford to get the bus Mm. and the train I didn't have any money left Mm. or anything it's just another one of those another one of those people that was such a bad influence that you just go on the complete 180 isn't it amazing how you remember those people What's oh, that, 40 scarred, years ago? just scarred me, yeah. totally. I mean, I, you know, had I not grown up from in the 60s and 70s, then I probably would have been the kind of person that would then, mm. you know, you'd need to go and see, a, you'd go and consult help, right? Mm. But from English people then, you didn't. Mm. Men are terrible at it anyway, mm. right? Mm. But then English men from the, from the <laughs> 60s, forget it. You don't, you just, mm. you know, you got a problem, you just lock it away. And, and, and was growing up in London in the 60s, were you aware of what was happening around you? Um, obviously quite a famous period in... No, not at all. Not at all. We were just in our own little bubble. We were just on the outskirts of London, so it's quite a nice place out in the, in the country, in the forest, and a lot of greenery. But no, not really. I didn't I mean, obviously, with the football and everything, but we didn't. That was not really an issue. I mean, I look, I look back on some old footage of stuff that happened in the early 70s now, and I remember. Mm. I remember things that we used to watch. We had the whole decimalisation thing and just changing over into proper money from the old money and... You know, it was a lot of, there was a lot of weird things happening. Like, we didn't have a telly to start with. Then we got a black and white telly. And that was a big deal. We had black mm. and white telly. And then mm-hmm. we didn't have a video recorder for, mm-hmm. for years and years. So it's a very, you know, it's a very different time. And you can't kind of go back and go, oh, everyone, you got it so lucky. You don't realise how, how tough different. it was. It just was what it was, mm. you know. And mm. you can't ever want to go back and change anything in mm. your life. You can't mm. have any regret because mm. you are where you are because of everything that's happened mm. to you in the past, mm. you know, good mm. or bad. Mm. And did you have brothers and sisters? or Three brothers. Yeah. And how was that? That would have been a pretty competitive family. Oh, very, very competitive, yeah. So there's only five years between the four of us. So we were all at the same school when we were, when we were little kids. We used to swim a lot. So we were at swim squad, swimming every morning. Mm-hmm. We'd come home in the evening and i say we didn't have any money, right? So Dad had made us these little dumbbells. Right? They were just like <laughs> bars with big bolts on. And, and we had this police academy PT training thing and every... Every day we'd come home from school, he'd send us upstairs, put our shorts and our vests on, come down, the four of us, and do these little workouts. 
would have, would have held you well for swimming in Australia. Oh, I suppose it did. But, you know, as a seven, eight, nine-year-old, you know, it's not what you want to be doing. You want to mm. be out playing mm. and you're mm. there doing that and he's mm. got a little stopwatch. Mm. You'd make you run around the block. Time and I've actually got that stopwatch <laughs> now when he died. But it was it was tough. Like he used to beat us a lot if we did things wrong. We used to, you know, four boys, you can imagine. Yeah, yeah. We probably beat right, him each other played, up. Played, played <laughs> havoc. Yeah. And he'd do anything we could to upset him and then and we'd upset him. That was it. We'd, <laughs> four of us would line up while he'd get his slipper out and just, just spank the living daylights out of each of us. And what about when you're moving through those teen years and, and sort of early 20s? You know, what, as you were sort of shaping up, sizing up what's happening in the world, what were your sort of major influences through that little period? Well, I left home at 17, and that kind of made me grow up pretty quick. Not that I'd done anything particularly wrong, but I came home, I came home one day and I'd had my hair bleached white and I had earrings. And my dad opened the door and went, shut the door, <laughs> threw a bag out the bedroom window. <laughs> And that was me. You're gone. not staying here. And that was me. Off gone. you go. Is that right? And I just walked well, up the road. Quick. Walked up the road to a, to a, uh, a red phone box. I don't. Know, I had twenty p from somewhere. I don't. Know. I put the money in. Phoned a mate and said I need to come and stay. And that was it. That was yeah. me. That was me out the home. Yeah. Wow. Well, off living by myself. Young. And what about people? Do, you know, through that period, obviously you, you talked about your mate, but were there other people? Were there people sort of guiding you through that? Yeah, period? there were. There were people guiding me. No, I'm, I don't think they were particularly guiding me well you know I've done a couple of presentations and we did one for our 70th where we talk about sliding doors and things mm. that could have gone either mm. way and I was telling Ellen Amoshi in, in one of the podcasts I did with her and there was a couple of incidents that happened when I was about 18 or 19 and had they gone that way I certainly wouldn't be here and some you know either either Probably luck. What are we talking about? Are you, are you going to end up in jail if you go this side <laughs> oh, yeah. and, and WT oh, over here? Jail or dead. Jail or dead, okay. Jail or dead. And over <laughs> here, not WT, because that was way before WT, but over here is alive. And I think with some of those, you then start to think, actually, that was a little bit scary. Mm. I need to just kind of sort mm. myself out. Mm-hmm. So then I'd started working, and there was a good mate of mine, Darren, when I worked at Drake and & Skull, and then he introduced me to his girlfriend or his ex-girlfriend who later became my wife and she pretty much put me back on track hmm. i think you know we'd started seeing each other for a little while and then she kind of through your 20s or late teens this was 20 hmm. yeah 20 2021 and then she really put me on track and said look you know this is it it's black and white like you do you stop doing that and we can go this way yeah right and that did so i i'd, I'd got back into the workforce i'd I did a dentured apprenticeship from, from 16 till 20 mm-hmm. as an engineer. I left that. I spent two years just messing around, not doing very much. I was on the dole. I was doing a bit of painting and decorating and just kind of flitting around and enjoying life. Did you enjoy that period or not? Yeah, I suppose so. It was pretty free, but it was quite a tough time as well. Like I was, so I was living by myself and I had a bedsit, like a studio. It was just a room in, in Highgate in North London. You know, it's quite tough. Like I'm during the winter, obviously in England, it's pretty cold. I remember mm. coming home, coming home one day, and I it just had a little little heater, bar heater that you had to put fifty p in, right? And you, you get a little bit at a certain amount of time for a heater. And I had I had a choice. I had fifty p to put in there, or I had fifty p to go and get something to eat. What did you go for? I went for something to eat, and I had ready brick with Maltesers in. Ah, oh, amazing! I was pimp them up, and that was it. So. <laughs> 
it kind of seems a bit weird now, but to have gone through some tough times mm. and, you know, I'd been burgled a couple of times. I mm. What little things I had, I'd got stolen. But they do, they do shape you, right? Yeah, you well, do need yeah, those events yeah. in your That's life. Right. You might not like them at the time, but they, they do shape you because mm. you've had something and you've experienced something bad mm. and you know that you want something better. Mm. Right? Mm. And, it, and I think, if anything, it probably gives you a little bit more fight and hunger and drive. Mm to get going and go, well, you know what? I'm not going to go back there. Mm. I've tasted that and that wasn't mm. good. So I'm yep. going to have something better. So, yep. you know, keeping in mind, I had that fundamental of always trying to improve on where kind of my dad had got to. Mm-hmm. Then I'd slip back here. Yep. So I had a bit of work, to, a bit of ground to make up to get back up there again. Mm. And yeah, then fortunately, Jane got me, got me into Quantity Surveying, funnily mm-hmm. enough. Yep. So I worked for a PQS in London called Gleeds, who are one of the major businesses over there. And I started there in 86. 1986, and that was in London, and went, went to uni and got myself re-educated and got a degree in quantity surveying. And I didn't, I wasn't exactly a studious individual, I've got to say, I kind of scanned my way through that as, as much as possible. <laughs> but I think really, even now, a university degree is, it's just a certificate of longevity, you know, if you've managed to last three or four years. So did you know the value at that point of university? So you obviously had that relationship uh, with not having much money and your parents probably I not knew that if you've you. got a you've got a degree, you it doesn't go away. Yeah. Right? You've yeah. got something to fall back on. And mm. I you know, mm. the ringing in the back of my head is my dad always telling me I'm never going to make anything of myself. I'm never going to mm. make anything of myself. That really drove you. It's like, you know what, I'll just get that done. Mm. I don't know what I'll do with it, but I'll get it done. Mm. At least it's another step on the ladder and mm. it can't be taken away. Mm. Mm. And then maybe I can move forward from there. And that's what I did. And, and I'd really got through that degree course, probably not knowing very much. Mm. I'll draw back on a couple of things even now sometimes, mm. but... Yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of learning going on, I've got to say. And how do you think, you know, that early relationship that you had with not having any money, how has that shaped your views around money today? <laughs> it just makes you want it. Makes you want to get it. But also, the problem with that is when you haven't had it, and then when you start to get a little bit of success, you kind of get a bit frivolous with it as well. And then during life, you know, you go through cycles in life and they're kind of every seven year cycles and you come through, you come through a progression of life where you're going to have to either go back down the ladder and reboot or you're ready to move into the next, ready to move into the next stage. And, and I've noticed those and, you know, you would notice them and you're fairly astute and aware mm. of things. And mm. um, you probably spend a lot of your time getting through to mid-30s without really kind of recognising it, and then, then you do and understand where you're at and why you're at. Mm, but mm. There, are, there are hurdles in life that you can either look at and ignore or you can jump over, mm. or they're leaps of faith, really. One of the training guys that we have in, in the business here, he talks about it, Kamal. It's, mm. You've got to take that leap, and that leap, you know, there's no safety net, there's no parachute, no, there's yeah. a, are you prepared to do it? But you know, nothing was ever given to me. Mm. So I've always had to work for it and strive yeah. and work hard. And then that comes back to the principles of you've got to work hard if you want something. Mm. And, and, and some of the things that you really detest, like mm. entitlement and mm. people that just expect mm. things to land on mm. their lap. It's mm. just that's not what life's about. Yeah, I think one of the things I really admire about you, Nick, and probably come, coming out of that is that you seem to find a way to find that success. And I think it sounds like you're, you're shaping that in your early years of your life, really. Do you feel like you have a certain amount of confidence because you've gone through that? You know, that if everything does go belly up, that you can survive and you can get through it? I think so. It's funny. I was, I was chatting to my mum last night about something and she said, 
you know, you were always a survivor, though. Mm. You'll always be able to, you'll be fine. You can always look after yourself. You can always survive. And I can. I mean, I'm quite independent. I like people being around, around me, but I have had that. And I think that's because, you know, 16, 17, like walking up the road with a bag over your shoulder going, mm. oh, well, that's, that's that. I've mm. got to go and look after myself. People don't do it. I mean, my daughter's, you know, she's 25. She's only just moved out. And she's doing a great job, I've got to say. She's quite, I'm quite impressed with how she's doing it. But at 17, she wouldn't have been able to do it, nor would I have expected her to be able to. So you weren't throwing the bag out the window for her? No way. (laughs) I certainly wouldn't be. I'd I'd be running after her if she was even thinking of going anywhere. But I think it does. I mean, everything in life, you know, as I said earlier, everything in life shapes you and makes you who you are and what you Mm. are. And Mm. you can't regret what's happened because it's it's made you stronger and made you the person that you are but mm. you know my fundamentals are on on resilience and strength and not letting things get me down and and you know I was always very driven to succeed in something and mm. whilst I had that grounding in Connysvane in in London at, at Gleeds Connysvane profession in the UK is very different to what it is here it's a very old school profession and you're not going to progress unless you've been to a certain school, right? And that old adage of, you know, the school tie very much was the case then mm. in the 80s. You know, and they, they would say, well, you're never going to go to, you're never going to be made partner because you didn't go to whichever school it was. So mm. I knew that was never going to be the case. And then we had an opportunity to move over here. Just absolutely took that opportunity in 1994 and came over and went, that's, that's it. We can leave everything behind and just go mm. and start a new life. So the two of us came over. And what led you to that decision? Yeah, obviously, you've been working in that firm. For, I was for I was eight working there so? for seven or eight years. Yeah, yeah. And anybody sort of tap you on the shoulder and say, "Nick, this is your calling. This is what you got to do." Or no, 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 no one, no one, none, none of that. I mean, I've only kind of been reaching out and talking to people, asking questions in the last ten years, fifteen years, really. Before that, I just kind of did what I thought was right, you know, and what maybe Jane would give me a bit of guidance on and. Um, people around me, but I didn't have I didn't have mentors, I didn't have coaches, I didn't have a, a, a close network of, of people that could mm. advise me. It was just kind of just got to do what you think is the right thing to do. We came here because we came over here to get married. Well, you couldn't get married back there. We could have got married there, but there were just complications with parents and. Yeah, then you wanted just, to make were, it harder for them to get there. There were just issues like, you know what, we don't need any aggravation. We just need a quiet wedding. Jane had a twin sister who lived here. And uh, we said, oh, that's fine. We'll just go to Australia. Then no one's coming. You know, it was all so kind of I'm not coming if she's coming. Yep. Did it, did it. Yep. So we came, we came here and just had a quiet wedding down at the bottom of Fleet Steps, at the backdrop of the Opera House. Beautiful. And that was in March, coming from Grey, London. It was amazing. Hmm. Beautiful blue skies and yep. clear air and, you know, know what you're doing. You know what it's like? When you, even when you've been overseas for a few weeks, you come back to Australia or, or probably more so Sydney, you get off the plane, it's like, oh, how clean is the air? And, and bright. How bright and is bright. it? And bright. Yes. And that's what it was like. So just went, we've got to come and move over here. And so when you landed here, how did things shape up for you? Who Did you sort of try to find out people that were kind of going to help you through that? Did you join sporting teams? I mean, as far as getting a job, so we came here really without a job. On a holiday, I just flicked through the yellow pages, which we still had at the time, and just looked down names of of businesses. But it was Christmas. So I didn't realise that Christmas was summer holiday here because Christmas in the UK is like two days and you're back at work again. So we just phoned, I just phoned a few firms and WT was one of them that answered. And Ron Moyer, 
who is good or bad has been a been an influence on my life. Mm-hmm. Answered the phone, said, "Yeah, come in." So mm-hmm. I came in, and he offered me a job. Said, "If you can get over here, you can have a job." And that was it. So I just came in, and again, probably pretty pretty much alone then. Mm-hmm. But I was very determined then. I, mm-hmm. I knew when I came in, I was going to work hard and achieve something. And mm-hmm. I remember saying to him, "You know, I, I'm not here just to do a job. I want to I want to be the MD of this place. I'm going to mm-hmm. run it." And How old were you then, early 30s, were you? 28. And so even from that point, you kind of knew that was that was about that was it was direction. about It was about then, right? Yeah. So before then, I was just sort of, you know, want a yeah. better life, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then got here, and then that was like, okay, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. Mm. And was that because that of the people right. that were around you, or more so because that was your, your driven ambition? Driving ambition, yeah. I think. But it's an interesting subject. We've just been holding a whole series of conversations with the board, with our associates, associate directors, and, mm. and other senior high potentials. Not everybody, but some people have a burning ambition to be the CEO or to mm. be the managing director. And mm. you have to ask yourself, why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> right? It's not, well, you know, but it's not until you're there that you would then look back at your older self and go, why did I want to do that? Mm. You know? You feel like you want to do it because it's the top of the pile. It's like, I've got to mm. keep going, I've got to keep going. You're working your way up and up and up. But it's not all it's made up to be when you get up there. No. You know? Very lonely um, at the top. Very lonely <laughs> at the top, yeah. But no one tells you that at the no. time. But, you know, drive and ambition. I mean, you know, you'd have the same thing. You must have mm. had yep. a burning desire to be leading or to be mm. doing something or to be mm. making a difference. Mm. So, you know, another kind of pivotal moment in all of that was probably around... 2010-ish, I suppose, when I was actually getting into a position of being able to influence mm. some things. And mm-hmm. at that point, it was kind of not just a like a pipe dream. It was starting to become more reality. Mm. Yep. And so how did you think those beliefs sort of shaped up in kind of what you or where you've got to today? Like, how is it really... I know, I know you've been driven, but... It's probably the reverse of what most people would expect. I didn't have a lot of people guiding me and helping me mm. through. I had a few people, significant people in my life, that really kind of scarred me mm. and made an, a major influence on my life because it was like, I'm never going to be like that. Mm. Or that is not the right way to do something. Mm. So not necessarily knowing the right way, I just mm. knew what was the wrong way. So... You know, when I set about putting the strategy in place for WT in 2013, it was very much focused on what I knew I didn't want it to be. And similarly, when we first met and started Mm. talking about the office environment in here, we knew what we had and we Mm. knew that that was not Mm. good. Mm. We didn't know that we could be as, you know, futuristic Mm. as we ended up being we even pushed you guys mm, yeah as well yep. well beyond and and you know it's i think it's still a great environment in here but when we first started talking about it this was like really out there you know when you think that was that the moss wall was the largest moss wall and unified communications and no phones that was all very kind mm. of up front so mm. a lot of it was done based on i don't want that i don't mm. want that i don't want that kind of attitude and culture and representation mm. so what's the 180 degree flip of all of mm. those things mm. and so how did your leadership sort of tenure come about how did you sort of work your way into that role i mean i know people don't just give you these things um, <laughs> and sometimes people don't even pull you into those they locations don't, they, right? don't. So they don't sometimes sometimes it's a little bit of a bloodbath yes Sometimes, sometimes it's the last man standing. <laughs> was that the case for you? Well, it was a kind of bit of both. Mm-hmm. 
there was kind of a bit of both in there. Not everyone has aspiration to be there. So mm. as it gets closer, the sort of field gets thinned out a little bit more. And I think it was maybe 2011 or something. Ron had called us in, a, in one of the board meetings and just said, right, I'm thinking about stepping down in a couple of years. Who thinks they're up for doing the MD role? And there may have been six of us that put our hand up out of 20, mm-hmm. maybe seven. Two were told immediately to sit down. Right. And the rest of us just off the cuff had to, had to chat to the whole board. Right. In an open forum. In an open forum about yeah. why we wanted to do it. We, yeah. did, we hadn't even been prepped for it. Did you throw your hand up? Did you, did you know that's what you wanted to do? I threw my hand up, yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah. Energetically, you did, not yeah. begrudgingly. Yeah. yeah, then we had to just, you know, it was literally, we were just in a meeting. said, oh, I'm going to step down. Who wants to be managing director next? And why? Stand up and tell everybody. Right? Had um, you thought about it? No, didn't even know about right. it. Didn't so even know you, it was coming. It was completely... You, did you respond well? Completely left field. Well, I don't know. Obviously responded well enough to... Yes, got, got through. Job. Got through. <laughs> yeah, but it, didn't, it wasn't quite as straightforward as that. And he, he'd been looking at... What have you been watching? It was a bit like Donald, Donald Trump's The Apprentice at the time. Oh, right? right. Okay. So we were put through a little series of tests and it was yeah. whittled down to, to three of us. And um, yeah, you had to do, come up with a few little tasks and projects and mm. bits and pieces. And, and what was the defining characteristic for you, do you think, that landed you the job? What actually happened is out of the three of us, we then had a load of psychometric testing and some other analysis. And then we had an external party advising. And, and then Tim in Melbourne mm. was given the gig. But I think it was kind of unfairly given to Tim. I don't think Ron really wanted to let go of it at that point in time. And there were some issues happening with our international businesses and there was a lot of politics going on. And, um, you know, things really, really conspired against Tim and Ron, mm. Ron like, hammered him to the point where we'd kind of, you know, almost had this separation of our Melbourne business and we'd mm. lost our Asian business. And it was all, you know, another one of those sliding door moments. It was very close to the whole business just, just falling into a pile of rubble. We had to step up and try and, you know, stop, stop the damage that was happening mm. and try and, you know, put the foundations back together over here. And mm. there was only a couple of us that were left doing that. And then that just became who still got the energy, who can keep going when there was... Yeah this political infighting that was just happening and everyone was getting, you know, corralled and cajoled to, to vote for and against and it was just a nightmare. And so what did your leadership stand for at that point? What, what were you looking to achieve? I was just trying to, at the point, that point in time, I was trying to reunite the business mm-hmm. and make sure that we still had a business because mm-hmm. it, was, it was, you know, potentially going to be carved off into, into separate bits. And, yep. you know, we're 72 years old now. This was 2002. 12 so we were you know 62 years it was a successful business we were hocked up to our eyeballs in 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 debt and commitment for Mm -hmm. from equity Mm -hmm. so we had a lot to fight for Mm. you know Mm. and really it kind of came down to phil and i just just still going and there was Mm. a defining a defining moment when we had an emergency meeting held or an egm held where we had to go in and and stand up against two very strong oppressive existing leaders and i remember sitting at home and chatting to jane and said look i've gonna i I can't do it i'm gonna go in tomorrow and if it doesn't go this way i'm out and if i'm out that means we've got to sell the house we've got to sell the apartment jess has got to come out of school we've got to sell we've got nothing we've got nothing right are you prepared 
to give everything up because we were geared up to the eyeballs and said, you've got to do it for your own health and safety and mental well-being. So we went in and, and I'd done all the politicking the night before and phoned around everybody around the country and thought we had our position and we came into this meeting and yeah, we were there prepared to just kind of jack it in and, and we stood up, we had to stand up and it may seem unusual to even be able to say that, but when you've got a very dominant leader You've, you look at him as though he's like 10 foot tall and you've got to stand up and just hold your ground, right, mm. against a bully. Mm. And, and yeah. a lot of the time you don't do it, but when you get pushed and you're back, to back, to back into a corner, you just go, you know what, I've got nothing to lose now. I've mm. got to do it. Mm. And that's kind of what happened. Yep. And then it went around the table and they said, well, okay, so the only person left that can be the MD, and this is a guy in Perth actually said it, Tom Connor, said his nick. And I was in there, so I'd got... <laughs> I'd gone into this meeting prepared to resign and lose everything. And Give that's in my right, head, yeah. just wow. going, oh, my God, that's it. I'm back. My life's gone. Mm. And I came out of that meeting. I phoned James. She's like, how did it go? I was like, you're not going to believe it. I said, what's happened? I said, I'm MD. <laughs> <laughs> you can stay in the house a bit longer. <laughs> but now it's over to me. I'm back again. <laughs> and that, that, was, that was kind of it. Yep. That was kind of it. So it's, um, I don't know whether that's unusual way to get there um maybe it is maybe it isn't i mean the more the more i've been involved in business and major decisions the more you kind of understand that the biggest decisions probably have the little littlest amount of time considered Mm. on them and and people focus on the small stuff and and Mm. spend a truckload of time on that but Mm. major major decisions Mm. really came down to that so Mm. i went well who's going to do the job and everyone was like i don't know i don't know well, the only one who can do it is Nick. I'm like, that's me. Standing. Hang on a second. I'm, I was about to resign. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, you got the job. First day or first, you know, 90 days. I talk a lot about the 90 days. Did, yeah, you, did you think yeah. about that? Did you, did you know the vision that you would want oh, to bring to the business? I was, I was Where just, did that all start? I was panicking. Were you second guessing yourself as well? Well, I didn't really know. I didn't really know what it was. I mean, I'd kind of thought about it and I'd been a director for a long time. But, you know, then suddenly you've got to kind of... You've got to, you know, suddenly you're, in, you're, you're at the top of the tree, but you can't suddenly be at the top of the tree and say to everyone, well, I'm the boss, right? Now you've got to do what I'm, because yesterday you weren't. You know, you're no different. It's like anyone gets a promotion. They're no different from the day before. Mm. They've just got a business card with a different title on it. And mm. that's what you need to kind of remember and be grounded. Mm. Don't mm. just go, oh, now I've been called this. I can now, I'm going to act and behave in a, in a different way. But the best, the best thing I ever did the best thing I ever did, and this wasn't long after, I'd got the position. I just, I turned around and someone said, I don't know what I'm doing. Who did you say that I to? I don't know what to do. I joined the CEO Institute mm. and I was chatting to some people there, which actually was one of the best things I ever did mm-hmm. at the time. Didn't know it at the time, just one of those things. And why but was where that? were there external forces or something was saying, yeah. go and do this? Because yeah. you're just with a group of people. Like we, yeah. we had some major major issues around then you know our, the australian business was was potentially breaking apart the managing director had left and his, his last words were his last words to me were if it's the last thing i do on earth it's going to destroy you and this business he then went to asia and tried to break asia apart we had political stuff going on over there we had mm. things happening I'd, not only did i fallen into the managing director position i'd fallen into the managing director position with a blooming house of cards that was mm. on fire and falling apart <laughs> so yeah of course i didn't know what to do mm. 
You know, if it, if it had been a business that was just ticking over and you come in and go, oh, all I need to do is just tweak it and turn mm, it and mm, do whatever. Mm, but mm. this this needed whole, wholesale transformation. Wholesale transformation. Yeah. You know, we had a bad reputation. We had a bad culture. It was toxic. The, the perception from outside wasn't very good. We had old-fashioned working environments. We... We had, you know, an IT system that was held together by band-aids and plasters mm. and a bit of super glue because there would be no investment because they were the senior shareholders that wanted to get out with all their money. So they didn't want to plough it back into the business. Mm. And yeah, so I, I got to this CEO Institute and we had a really great chairman and a great bunch of people in there. And, you know, I think one of the first meetings they go around and introduce, you all introduce yourself and say, you know, what's your issue? And I think that meeting, I don't know, I'm not even sure if it went past me. It just got to me and I went, oh, hi, my name's Nick Deeks and I've just been landed this job and I don't know what I'm doing and these are my, some of my problems. Everyone's like, Whew, right, okay, well, let's settle in and have a little look at this one then. So, and I don't think the next person even got to introduce himself. Um, and that was a monthly group of meetings we had and, you know, it really did help me get kind of back on and then in confidence as well i'm sure yeah and then from yeah. there i'd not as a group there but because i'd now admitted and i'm quite a big believer in the power of the universe right and because i'd now admitted i didn't know what i was doing mm. or i needed help and mm. i was open open opened up the opened up the heart to some help and assistance and it came yeah and it came and i, and I had a, i got a coach and i got a mentor and i found some other people and and that's what happens and i talk to people now if i'm if i'm mentoring people and they go mm. how do you find a coach mm. okay we don't go looking through the yellow pages to find a coach what you do is you you open up to somebody and say mm. this is and then they'll refer you to someone and someone mm. and someone because that's how the world moves around right people helped me and didn't charge for it didn't do anything it's what they do and then i do the same mm. and i think mm. that's how business happens and evolves and people get where they get because mm. of other good people they've mm. they've been helped and assisted and then they in turn give back and help and assist mm. and mm. then yeah i don't back. know too many people that say no when you ask them for help so one of the, my, the things i did admire nick is that very quickly i guess after you know you're taking that tenure you you put your strategy together for yeah, the business yeah. and and the ambitions and and obviously workplace played a big role in that so could you tell us a little bit about how that happened what were the ambitions what did you want to try and achieve and and how did workplace play into that uh workplace was was a uh, i didn't realize how important it was at the time but it was actually a major component of everything that we were thinking of what I was thinking and what I wanted to try and do. So we needed to change the culture, needed to change the working environment, needed to change the way we did work, needed to change the perception inside and outside. And we needed to invest in our people. So invest in our people, invest in the business, invest in brand perception and everything. So it's pretty full on mm. strategy of transformation. And I'd got that written out and, and put together. It was really just a lot of a lot of thoughts about what do we got to do and how do we get it. You know, we got people and culture. We'd you know we'd we'd gone through this transition of getting rid of our HR. We'd got rid of our managing director. We'd got rid of our finance director. We'd got rid of our chairman. Anyone that was associated with with the business WTM you got old, a blank canvas just just <laughs> went. Speak. And we had to start yeah. again. And we had to bring yeah. some external people in. Yeah. HR and people and culture. I didn't I didn't even understand what that was until I went outside and spoke to some outside people. We had HR internally, and that was not HR as mm. as we would know. It was called HR, and it really just did whatever it did. But that became 
you know, and we got Karen and she came part of a strategic direction and planning. We got Robin as part of the CFO and looking at finances and everything else. So, and then in terms of how visually the structure and the strategy came together, I'd had a communication consultant. We had PR consultants. I'd, I'd been reaching out to lots of, lots mm-hmm. of people, which is very anti-WT because you're normally looking in and only deal with things and don't admit you don't know something. And I sat with, with Dave Sawicki, my comms guy, who's still my comms guy now, and a commercial cartoonist called Carl Sheriff. And we sat similar to this and Carl was sitting behind and we sat for about six hours just chatting about where did it all start? What have you done? What was your vision? Blah, blah, blah. Mm. And Carl just drew, was drawing it all up. And then at the end of the session, he flipped it around and I didn't know what he was doing. And he came, it was a plan on a page because we had to be able to communicate the plan on a page. And then that was so good. I got it colored and it's up on the, up yeah, on the, up on the wall now. And it's, it's great because it's just a guiding light benchmark all the time so mm. every time you talk about anything in this in a strategy and again this is this is probably when i if i knew it it was only subconsciously it just it proved to be the right thing and having a visual representation because you always come back to it and having a clear strategy because anyone questions what you're doing so it's there it's in the strategy that's mm. why i'm doing what i'm doing not mm. waking up each day going yeah, what we're gonna do today i think i'll you know paint the office red and I think mm. we'll do it blue today and I think we'll go and start this service line and we'll do mm. whatever. You've got mm. a strategy and you've got a clearly defined strategy. Mm. And then you've got to get the whole communication piece around that. So first part in that is getting the shareholders on board. So we'd had the struggle with the previous management, then there's all that struggle with the with the shareholders because we were undergoing a major, major change management piece. Mm. We were going to move the business, shift the business across Australia shift the perception of it, the website, the way it looked, the culture, the way we spoke, the way we dealt with people, the bad behaviour, and then the relocation from where we were, because we were in North Sydney for 50 years. We wanted to get out of there, so I looked at, I put a map, uh, pretty much of where everybody, just a dot of where everybody lives around in Sydney, and went, okay, as long as it wasn't disenfranchising anybody to go north or south, we should probably be in the city instead of North Sydney. That kind of made sense. A lot of people didn't want to do that, especially some of the directors and shareholders who lived on the North Shore and didn't want to be driving over and thought they were entitled to just have a nice easy drive into North Sydney from home. But we put all that aside, so that's not, that's not part of the issue. It shouldn't be part of the consideration. In fact, we should be getting public transport anyway. Let's move to the city. We've, through you know, various mechanisms, we found this building. And I was a real advocate of getting public transport because I'd set up the sustainability business mm. as well. And then as we came to signing of the, the contract, the only person who didn't have a parking space was me. So I, sp- <laughs> and I still don't have one. I spent the first, the first few months either walking or running or getting the bus over from, from Cremorne to here. So when we came into this environment, the transformation and change, as, as you would know, was not just relocation of a physical building from North Sydney to here, we wanted to completely change the way we did everything. And if you remember back, we were at the Australian Open. How could I forget? <laughs> <laughs> we were sitting on the 17th and might have been watching Rory McIlroy come down and we were talking about what I wanted for the office. I'm not going to write anything down. It's a feeling. I just want a feeling, right? And I want it to feel very different. And I want it to feel homely and comfortable and nice and relaxed. And, you know, it can't be boxes and rectangles and offices and everyone's got to be part of the community and, you know... Somehow go and make that work. <laughs> On the receiving end, I can tell you that, that that's probably one of the worst briefs I've ever got. But very exciting all the same. I mean, it was an extremely exciting project to work on. And I must admit, 
I think there was a great development of the relationship and a good understanding of what you were looking for because we took that time to really understand what you're looking for. And I think there were also moments that you referred to before where there was a healthy tension around trying to create the best place and really push the people that were working with you respectfully to get the best result for you. Um, Push us out of our comfort zone, which I think was a really, was a masterstroke at the time because if you don't get the permission from some clients, people certainly on this side of the fence don't feel like they can go there. It's very unusual for a quantity surveying business, especially when we do a lot of office interiors, to say there is no budget. It will be what it will be. You know, mentally, obviously, we're going all over. It doesn't go too far out of the way. But <laughs> it couldn't be constrained by the, by the budget. It needed to be what it needed to be. And we'd worry about how much that costs kind of when we got there. I think mm. if you make decisions solely based on finance, you're always, you're always putting some box around it, aren't mm. you? Uh, in, in lots of things. Once we'd taken that out of the equation, so there really is no budget, but, you know, keep it within a, within a limit of something. You know, fortunately, you'd been through all this process before. So the whole workplace strategy change management piece which we probably didn't appreciate how much was involved in all of that and fortunately we'd started this journey close to two years before we were going to be moving and then you know you and your your team came in and we set up an interior committee which we as directors we didn't get involved in we wanted that through the business so we had we had an associate we had a couple of qs's we had some admin we had some cadets we had a bit of everything in there when everyone provided input and if you remember, when we were trying to push everybody and test them and say, come up with ideas, whatever you want, it doesn't matter. It's no, no idea is a silly idea. They'd come mm. back and go, can we have two screens? Like, well, that's not really earth-breaking. That's revolutionary. <laughs> you know, push it, push yep. it. And we had to start feeding, or, you know, through you, ideas of, of you know, imaginative workplaces mm. and say, this is the kind of thing. Push mm. beyond what you think. It's not mm. about a desk and an office and a chair and a... You know, there's going to be no phones. There's going to be no, no storage. There is no fixed desk. All of those were, were, you know, huge concepts to try and get over. They seem kind of commonplace now, but, you know, seven or eight years ago, it was way ahead of, of where anyone was thinking, especially for a very rigid, old-fashioned, quantity-surveying type business mm. that don't ever think that. I mean, mm. if you remember the amount of drawings and mm. crap that we Paper. had... Paper, 14 metres per person average. Mm. Um, you know, Phil's desk, like he had a huge desk and he had this much actual wooden desk and there were piles of paper everywhere. I think he did that deliberately. Piles, so of, paper on, piles of paper on the floor. Yeah. So it was, it was such a dramatic change, but it had to be part of the enormity of the change to jolt people into the new, the new way. Mm. I think if we'd have done it incrementally and just ease things out and said okay you can have a desk but you can't have a phone okay Mm. now we'll get we just had to go from that to that and then we had to figure out a communication piece yeah my observations too were that because you'd been through that tumultuous period with the business and people were still working out what Nick Beeks was about and his leadership was about that they needed to feel safe to be able to put their best ideas out there and I think that that was certainly one of the things that I um, looked upon you playing a major part in allowing people to feel safe so that their ideas could be presented and could be taken up. Because I think without that, they may have sort of stayed in their lane, so to speak, stayed in the safe part, not really offering up much more than what they had to kind of give. So you played a major role in sort of bringing that strategy to life, and, but also en- enabling people to have that safe space to be able to really 
go to the next level without yeah, fear of yeah, repercussion. Yeah. Well, they'd come. They'd come very much from a place of not being able to do that. Mm. You know, if you if you spoke up, that wasn't encouraged. My, my, the first the first board meeting I ever attended after I was made a director was one of the senior guys said to me, "Okay, now so when you go in here, just keep your head down, don't say anything, and just get the first meeting out of the way." <laughs> and that was. That was what the business was. People weren't encouraged to come up with ideas. They weren't encouraged to put things forward. So it was very oppressive, and therefore you didn't have any ideas. And, mm. and you know, as a leader, you haven't got all the ideas. You need to get them from, from externals or from your own people or from books or wherever. You've got to, you've got to reach Search out. for inspiration, you've got to reach absolutely. Out. And so, you know, it's been five years, Nick. You, you obviously and the team put an activity-based working environment in here, which was pretty revolutionary, I would say, for a quantity surveying firm that had been in their space for 50 years. How do you think things have moved on since then to where we are today? Because it's still a great space, functioning probably pretty well. I know you've yeah. added a couple more people. You had 74, I think, when you so landed, and yeah, now yeah. 130 something. Uh, about 130 now. So it was designed for 100. Which again was another another huge leap. It was a little bit like that that field of dreams, you know. If you build it, they'll come. And we were we were extending the amount of space we had. We were putting all these empty desks in to go. Well, that's planning for growth. Mm. Um, I'm amazed. That, uh, you know, I, I I love coming in here. I love this work environment. Even now, we've really not done very much other than change a few lockers. We took out some storage which we didn't need and put some lockers in. We've added a few more plants and we're just having a little bit of a tidy up at the moment just to get things ready for people to be coming back in the new year. But, you know, this, this environment, and we, we've, we've spoken about it before and been on, you know, different panel discussions about it, but it, it just withstood the test of time and it's transcended all of the issues around COVID. You know, it's a model example, really, of space planning because we were, our desks were deep enough, the seats were far enough away, and all the rigmarole that was happening during COVID of separation and 1,500 metres and plastic screens and whatever else, like we did nothing. Mm. We did nothing in here, apart from just putting up a little sign to say there's only six people in this room or eight people in that room, and don't forget to wash your hands. And it just, we didn't have to modify anything. And we really still don't have to modify anything now. We're just giving it a little refresh, which was always part of the original planning. That we said we want to be able to just sort of tear down a sheet of paper and yep. put a different colour paper up, you know? Mm. In fact, I think you're taking down the finance space at the moment. The finance office. Out of the room. That's it. The finance office, because we don't need that office. And we didn't need it from day one. Mm. But finance being even more conservative than uh, quantity surveyors needed to have, wanted to have their own office. Mm. And they'd only been in And now there. they feel like they're missing out. Now they feel like they're missing out because they're stuck yeah. in an office. Yeah. So we're taking the room down. But, yeah. you know, there's, there's been a lot, a lot of talk in the last two years, 18 months, two years about workplace design what it should be what's the work what's the what's the work environment of the of the future are people coming back are they all working mm. at home is this hybrid activity? i'd love to know blah, your blah, thoughts blah, blah, blah. you've always got some great thoughts on this my my thought is that everyone's just going to come back and and i think we are not setting a flexible work policy mm-hmm. because by the very nature of of policy it's now not flexible right it's now rigid so you've got structure if you put any structure around a policy it's not it's not flexible so we've got we're we've got an environment we're calling um, balanced working arrangements and it's whatever suits an individual Mm -hmm. and we always had flexibility we our flexibility was not you work on a monday and tuesday and you work on a thursday and friday because that is 
structured. Mm. Our flexibility was, you know, come to them, come to a great work environment. Why wouldn't you mm. come here? But, mm. you know, if you don't want to be in on one day because you've got to do something, that's fine. Just mm. work from home. So the work environment, together with the IT and the technology and the cloud-based applications, enable it all to be very agile mm. and mobile and mm. everything else. But mm. we haven't said to anybody to be coming back into the office mm. post-COVID yet. But every day there's more people coming back in. Mm. So I think people are pretty fed up with the whole working at home. You know, I, I can't do it. I did a day. Drove me mad. I, can't, I just can't do it. I like to have the separation. I like home to be home and I like work to be work. And yeah. I don't like turning around from the dining table and, and you're in your living space. I just, you know, mentally I've always been in that place where I need to sort of move away from home and travel something. I mean, it's only a 15-minute walk for me now. Mm. It's not a lot of travel, but that's work. And then you mm. finish work and, you know, you pack up your pencils and you mm. go home. And mm. then when you're at home, you're relaxed. But this has always been kind of a... It's like a home in here, isn't it? It's, it's, um, well, that's a great place to work. I'd it doesn't feel office you know? And yeah. that was one of the things I think mm. we'd, we'd, you know, we spoke about. Or I'd said to you, I just don't want it to feel like an office. And, you know, when we have tours in here, I'm, I can never really put my finger on what it is, but whether it's the colours, the materials, the... Some of the old stuff, we've got old recycled timbers, we've got old furniture we've picked up at bric-a-brac stores. And mm. there's a lot of inner kind of history about some of the things that are happening in here with, you know, friends have made these tables and there's a lot of personal kind of touches in here. Maybe that's mm. why I'm so connected to it. But mm. I don't see that we would need to be doing major shift on anything in here. If, if we had more of this balance working of, you know, whether that was... 60% of people only came in 80% of the time or whatever the number is mm. it end up being. To me, all that does is it enables us to actually get more use out of this space because we're 130 with, a, with 100 seats. If that became more of the working environment and the way forward, we could probably be 160 in the same space. Breaking the mould, Nick. So what it does, it actually gives you, it makes you makes your space work even harder for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I love your thoughts around the 24-7 work environment too. Well, that I'm was... I'm not sure I mean, everyone shares that, but it's No, no, but that actually, that was, a, that was an interesting concept, wasn't it? And, and, and after I'd said that, which is a few years ago, I started getting calls from organisations saying, if you're serious about that, we would lease your space overnight. Maybe you explain to people what that is. We hadn't got there, so... I just think that they, a work environment is essentially leasing it for 24-7, 365 a year. But you only operate within it from, say, 7 o'clock in the morning till 7 o'clock at night or 8 till 6 or 9, till, whatever, the, whatever the time is. The rest of the time is just sitting empty. Mm. And it seems like a real waste of space that it isn't. When there's a shortage or there's people that could be doing it or people can't afford to pay you know, a CBD lease, it's like... Why isn't that getting mm. recycled mm. over? Mm. And one of the reasons, actually, we're getting closer to that, but one of the reasons we couldn't is because we had servers at the time. So we had some hardware that wouldn't enable other people to be logging in. Mm. But the more, in fact, we've got rid of everything in our comms room now. So everything is cloud-based. So anyone could come in here and log into their own cloud environment and work within that. So I, I whilst I threw that out there a couple of years ago and... I did field a couple of inquiries about it. It was kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it was more of a futuristic scenario than mm. let's be doing this tomorrow. But, you know, I think in terms of smart cities and how do they work and what's that going to be, and there's certainly a, a concept 
around that. Mm. You know, the work the working week, the working day is is two hundred year old concept of five days a week, eight hours a day, forty hours forty hours a week. Mm. It's a two hundred year old concept, but still, mm. it's kind of stayed there. And that might have been sweated a bit, and the forty hours is probably fifty. But it's still Monday to Friday. Mm. You know, why isn't it, why isn't it Tuesday to yeah. Thursday or Tuesday mm. to Sunday? And mm. one of the aspirations that I put to the business when we were talking about the strategy and, and moving forward, is I want us to get to a four-day week. I want to be able to pay everybody the same salary but work four days a week. It's not about and why hours. Is that? Because why, why it's that about pay? why not? Why should it be five days? It's about delivering an output, not having done a certain number of hours. If you give someone a task to do and say, if you get that finished, you can go home. That's you done for the week. They'll get it done in three days mm. if it was a five-day task. If they got five days, they'll take five days. They'll mm. stop for lunch. They'll stop mm. for tea breaks. They'll stop for a natter and blah, blah, blah. And there's some good bits in that because you've still got to have that social mm. communication, that mm. super chicken stuff. But equally, if they can get it done in three days, then they've got four days at home with their family. And the mm. family and outside work time is important, you know, for mental health. And yeah. it's not all about work, you mm. know. And the closer you get to retirement, you're a long way off of that. But I can <laughs> tell you, the closer you get to the t- retirement, the more you see work as just a thing and a vehicle to have got you to, to the next stage of your life to be mm. able to go off and start mm. enjoying Mm. what that's all about you don't work until you're 65 retire and then drop mm. dead the next mm. day that that's not life for yeah. me that's not life that's a great segue because i do myself i do believe that you know i always find it funny when people talk about work and life balance and for me it's all life it's just and life. work is a part of it and so how do you think your personal sort of attributes and your personal leadership and your journey to kind of get to where we are today has kind of impacted what you've transpired with here at WT, and also thinking about what, what's the sort of legacy that you'd like to, to leave when you move on as well? I've never been one about legacy. It would be nice to just know that I've come in and put my fingerprint on something and left. But as I say, our business is 72 years old. So it's not me. It, it's not my predecessor. It's not the predecessor before that. It's, it's been collectively groups of people that have influenced the business. And there's a group that are influencing it right now. And there'll be a group that influence it again, you know, post, post me and post the current leadership team. So all you can hope is that it doesn't destroy itself. Or maybe know, that or, it goes uh, to the next level. It should go to the next level. So mm. we're, we're setting it up. We've got, we've got the, the future structure in place. We've got succession planning in place. You know, we're working on people's strengths and talent mapping and understanding who's the right people to fit in the right, because we're a very different business now mm. from where we were. We're, we're, you know, when I joined in 1995, we're six times the size of what we were then. When I took over in 2012, we're over double everything, headcount, revenue, profitability. We've expanded into the Middle East, North America, India. You know, we've got solid business in New Zealand and Asia and the UK. And What do you put that all down to? What's the recipe for success? Here? Well, connectivity with all those things. So as part of the strategy of the Australian business, to connect the Australian business, because mm-hmm. we were essentially five or six offices within a country that sort of did their own thing, held together by a name, but that was about it. And so I wanted to get that connected and the IT systems connected and the office environments connected and everyone who works in every office feel like they're working for the same company, the same mm-hmm. culture interaction more training and and, you know interaction amongst individuals and you can walk from one office to another office as you've 
designed them and you'd know you're in a WT office. Mm. You know, there's seamless connectivity. You walk in, you're on the Wi-Fi, you're all done. Standardise the way we approach and do things, our reports, our, you know, communication and language. And then that from there, then to do that into the, into the, the global piece as well. So I had a bigger vision of a global connectivity as well outside of the Australian mm-hmm. connectivity. And, and a lot of that's happened. So did the global branding and the global website and every office around the, country, around the, the world has got the same way of doing things. The offices might look a little bit different, but mm. it's the same way of doing things. So we've still got the, you know, got the same... Might seem simple, but the same letterheads, the same business mm. cards, the same. But as much as it's difficult to try and corral even people within Australia, you can imagine what it's like trying to do it on a global mm. scale when you've got completely different personalities, egos, and drivers from, you know, obviously Chinese are very different mm. from the Indians to, to the to North Americans to to the to the Brits. Mm. Everyone's got a different opinion and no one mm. wants someone to be sitting at the top going, this is what we're doing and we're changing this to this to this and you've got to mm. try and bring everybody along the journey with Did all that. Did you have well. that vision so, when you sort of were standing up your leadership tenure? Because I sensed that you were trying to just keep everything together. To start with, it was very much just keep it together. And then yeah. once it was together, it felt like it was together. I mean, that was a bit of a journey. It wasn't just a you know, magic wand and it's done. And then it was the next steps. So, like, mm. so once you feel like you've got that done, what's next? Done that bit, what's next? Done mm. that bit, what's next? So the strategy we put together, the five-year strategy, two and a half years into it, we'd achieved everything that was on there. So we rebooted it again. That's taken it out to 2023. And the global vision, there was a global strategy as well, which we, you know, I'm very focused on the global connectivity and strategy and, and trying to bring the three component parts of the business together into one trading entity but they just proved to be a little bit too difficult you know there's 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 issues there's taxation there's there's just complications trying to make make a global business but mm. to all intents and purposes it it looks like a global mm. business mm. so nick it's been fascinating talking to you today one last question from me what piece of advice would you give a 12 year old or 15 year old nick deeks obviously reflecting on your life and where you've got to. What would I say to myself? Go down the driving range and, and practice to be a professional <laughs> golfer and don't be a corny fan. <laughs> That's what I'd like to be. That was always my ambition as a kid. I just want to be a professional golfer. But I think if I was going to, wouldn't, I wouldn't go back to 12 or 15 year old and tell myself to do something different. There were, there were some silly things that I did. But like I said earlier, you are what you are because of what you've done. And that shaped you and made you the mm. person that you are. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back and change anything in there, I would probably say just be a little bit more considerate and compassionate along the way. But, you know, not at 12-year-old, that was 1978. Like The world was a pretty different place. 12-year-old now, I wouldn't want to be a 12-year-old now and, and have a whole career ahead of me. I'm quite happy with where I am and the fact that I'm getting to the end of, <laughs> end of things. But still young enough to be fit and, and enjoy life. So just be nice to people. What goes around comes around. Don't expect. Don't take from people you know, good things happen to good people. Mm. Nick, it's been fascinating. Great to hear your life story. Thank you, Ron. Thanks for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. (laughs)